You know, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems like all of the lies in the book are really kind of built upon two pillars. And the two pillars would be that truth is fluid. In other words, it's not objective like we just talked about. But then there's a second component that you'd have to have in place as a pillar in order for all of these lies to be something you'd buy into. And that second idea is that humans are inherently good. Welcome to the Scripture and Plain Reason Podcast. An engaging podcast where we affirm the authority and the clarity of Scripture. My name is Ryan. My name is Brian. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, This is part two of our interview with Elisa Childers, and we are just so grateful to have you, Elisa, back. And uh, we're going to jump right into this episode. So, Brian, fire away with question number one. Well, Lisa, last Tuesday was the release date for your new book, uh, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. And what little snippets I've already read really helped by it and excited to provide this book for our folks at our book table here at our church I wanted to ask you, it, it seems to me, in just looking at your previous book that we talked about on last episode, Another Gospel, and comparing it to the theme of this book, it seems like that one was kind of super theological, and this one seems to be a little more domestic, maybe even a little more practical in terms of you're addressing a similar topic, but just in a different way. So we're interested to know what led you to write the book and Is that a fair kind of contrast and comparison? Yeah, I think so. Um, So another gospel was, I I think it's kind of more of like a theological memoir. So it's walking the reader through my crisis of faith, and it's a lot more serious, I think, in certain areas, and um, just walking the reader through the questions I had, where I looked for answers, how I found those answers. And then Live Your Truth and Other Lies. Um, I mentioned in our last episode that in progressive Christianity, just like any other movement, there are the scholars, there's the pastors, there's the different, you know, sort of groups, there's the thought leaders, and then there's the pop level influencers. So Live Your Truth and Other Lies kind of swung out to focus in primarily on those pop level influencers. So whereas another gospel was interacting more with the just the general thought leaders, the more theological minds in the movement, this one is is going for more the Facebook personalities and the Instagram celebrities that are promoting a lot of these messages. And the reason I decided to write this book, um, well, actually, so rewind to just before I wrote another gospel, the whole reason that I had the opportunity to write another gospel is because I had written a book review of a book called Girl, Wash Your Face, which was like the third most popular book of the year, sold millions of copies, uh, was widely read, not just among Christians, but among the culture as well. And it was written by a self-professed Christian, published on a Christian publishing house. And it was very antithetical to the gospel. So I wrote this review that went viral. It had like a couple million views. It was an excellent review. Yeah, I was able to read it. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was it was within, you know, I mean, millions of of views just within a few weeks. And so that's when publishers started calling, agents started calling. And I thought, well, this is my chance to write a book. So I didn't write a book really about that was more along the lines of that review because I wanted to write another gospel. So Live Your Truth and Other Lies is really more like the book length 
version of that blog post that was that book review. And the reason I went ahead and did that is I had a a talk I was giving at women's conferences called Pretty Little Lies. And it was my most requested talk. And it was basically interacting with slogans that are aimed at women through culture, but also, you know, given a Christian sort of veneer and sanctification. And I thought, you know, it would be really great just to write a general book that's not just aimed at women, but taking all of the cultural slogans and mantras and kind of these deceptions that sound good that are aimed at everybody and they they might look a little different for men than they do for women but taking a look at these and saying like look I get it I, I see this is like a nice and positive thing you'd want to say to somebody and I get why you'd want to say it but let's just take a look at what's right underneath this lie and why it's actually not true and actually not good for you and then go to the Bible and not just give a list of like well here's why it's wrong but also saying, like, this is the much more beautiful and life-giving truth that the Bible has to offer to replace that lie. And so that's kind of what we what we do in the book is we just take these slogans and mantras like live your truth, you are enough, you are the boss of you. Then, you know, we look at the YOLO hashtag, you only live once. We look at um, the idea that God just wants you to be happy, like that's the main point of life. And so it was kind of fun because there's a lot of humorous storytelling and then there's also just a lot of scripture, which I loved getting to be in scripture so much writing that book. Well, your chapters are really creatively titled. It's, it's not necessarily your um, saying. You unpack it in the chapters as I was reviewing what I got to see. But could you just speak to the one that you title the book after, Live Your Truth? And it seems to me that you're making this point that these sayings that are so popular um, in our culture, behind them is a worldview. Behind them mm-hmm. is a, a thought pattern, an ideology. And so they seem cute. And I think you even say in one of your videos, or maybe you say it in the book, that you almost wanted to hit like and share because yeah. these sayings are kind of like, oh, yeah. And then you think, well, okay, what's behind that? So could you talk a right. little bit about the premise or the title of your book, that saying, live your truth? Right. We chose that one for the title because it really does, as you've articulated, reveal the worldview behind what we're talking about in the book, which is postmodernism. So this is the dominant philosophy of our culture. A lot of people may have heard the word postmodernism, but they don't really get what it means or, you know, and there's a lot to it. It was a reaction to modernism. There's all sorts of stuff going on historically, but philosophically, it can really just be summed up with the idea of truth is not fixed. It's not objective. It's not absolute. It's sort of fluid. So, you know, you live your truth and I'll live my truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And so I think we have to realize that our culture has shifted into this worldview. And it is a worldview. It is the lens through which people see the world. And while most people are not walking around living like that's true when it comes to things like banking or science or math or medicine, right? Most people believe truth is objective when it comes to those things. But what our culture has done is taken the categories of spirituality and morality. And we've moved those out of the science and math category, and we've put them in the preference and opinion category. So like um, having the same effect of whatever you think is the best flavor of ice cream, whatever you think is the best way to live religiously or morally, like that's all in one category. And then all this logic and science and facts and all this is over here. And so what we try to do in the book is show why that doesn't work. You can't actually put religion in the favorite kind of ice cream category because Religion doesn't work that way. Now, many religions do, 
many religions, or they're just a list of rituals or philosophies or ways to make your life improved, maybe things that work for you, the Buddhist Eightfold Path or something where it's practical and it's giving you more peace and happiness in your life. So you live your truth and I'll find my path, right? But if Christianity is actually true, um, which it claims to be objectively true, rooted in actual historical events, making claims about who Jesus was as an actual person in history. If all of that is true, if the claims Jesus made about himself are true, then Christianity is exclusive, which means it rules out all other religions because even Jesus said, I'm the only way to God. And so if Christianity is true, you can't just live your truth. I mean, you can, but there's eternal consequences for that. And so that's why we try to show. And then, of course, if God exists and he's revealed himself and we can know some things about him, then he's got some ideas about what's morally good and bad as well. And so these things are not in the ice cream category. We got to get them moved back into the objective category because that's where they are. They, you know, God exists or he doesn't. It doesn't matter what you believe about it. There's a reality that is, you know, your belief is going to line up with reality or not when it comes to that. Whereas with something like ice cream, there's really no objective standard outside of my own mind of what the best flavor of ice cream might be. So that's that's kind of outside of that realm of objective facts, right? Mm. And so um, I think that that would be the first thing people need to understand is that all of the lies that we talk about in the book are built upon our culture's acceptance of postmodernism, which is a rejection of the idea that truth, if it exists, that it could be known by anyone or claimed to be known. Well, Lisa, um, this message that you're conveying through your book is so incredibly timely. You know, we talked a lot about social media and how destructive that can be. I'm just curious, what do you think are some cultural pitfalls or lies that you have observed in relation to what you've written in the book? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. It seems like all of the lies in the book are really kind of built upon two pillars. And the two pillars would be that truth is fluid. In other words, it's not objective like we just talked about. But then there's a second component that you'd have to have in place as a pillar in order for all of these lies to be something you'd buy into. And that second idea is that humans are inherently good. This is like the big message that our culture is sending to everybody. I mean, especially with my kids, when I look at the media that's aimed at them, the shows, the YouTube channels, the all the things that are aimed at them, it's to instill in them this message that you are inherently good. Like whatever you find inside of yourself is good. And all you need to do is find it, identify it, and then proclaim it and expect other people to agree with what you found there and identify yourself based on what you find inside of yourself. And so it's this idea that humans are inherently good. I think that, uh, you know, when we're talking about evangelism today, there are different challenges for each generation of Christians. But I think one of the greatest challenges for Christians right now in sharing the gospel is convincing people that they're sinners, because everything that they're being told by their culture is that, you know, if, if there's something wrong in their life or if there's a problem, they just need to kind of sink deeper into themselves to find this pot of gold that they're going to find down there. And so I think like not to get too in the weeds on this, but I think everybody, whether they're Christians or not, realize that sometimes what we want and what we desire is in conflict with maybe what most people would say is right or wrong. So everybody recognizes that sometimes we want things that are wrong. And I think 
Christianity gives a very different answer to this than culture does, because in culture, the main message, especially as it would relate to things like sexuality and gender and those sorts of things, is that if your desire is in conflict with, you know, what the cultural idea or the maybe the previous idea of what's right or wrong, your desires are always going to be right. So what you need to do, according to culture, is affirm your desire and maybe cast judgment on what other people have said was right or wrong in the past or something like that. Whereas Christianity says right and wrong is fixed. It's based on the nature and character of God. And when your desires are in conflict with that, you actually need to repent and change. There's something in you that needs to be changed and transformed and renewed, reconciled to God, redeemed. And that's the message of Christianity. But in culture, it's the opposite. It's like, No, whatever you find inside yourself is good. So don't change that. Keep that and figure out a way to make everything else line up with that. Whereas Christianity, it's the opposite. You got to change it. You got to repent. You got to get rid of the old man. You got to put off the, the old self and be renewed and transformed and sanctified and made more and more like Christ every single day. It's a radically different message built on two completely different worldviews. And don't you think that when individuals that are thinking that way and feeling like, well, whatever's inside of me is good, we also know that everybody has God's moral code written on their hearts. And so it's almost like they're going to be consistently in conflict with themselves mm-hmm. as opposed to Christianity where we know we're sinners and we know we need a savior and we just consistently try to be more like Jesus. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, I'm just even thinking about this, some of this radical gender theory that they're pushing on our kids, you know, where they're actually pursuing surgical options for kids that haven't even entered puberty yet, life-altering amputations and surgical, unchangeable, irreversible changes making made to their body based on something that they might desire in the moment. And the only reason I bring that up is because there was a time, maybe five, 10 years ago, when nobody would have thought that would be possible. They would have thought, well, we would never go that far. That that would be too far. And here we are. I mean, just here in Nashville, Vanderbilt uh, opened a clinic, you know, to, to do double mastectomies on teenage girls. And through some creative journalism from Matt Walsh, we've, we've got that paused for, for the moment. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy to me to think that that's where we're at as a culture, where we're telling little boys, hey, if you have a feeling, it's okay to amputate part of your body that you can never get back and be sterile for life, never be able to bear children. I mean, these are little kids that we're giving these decisions to. And the only reason I bring up such a radical example is because it's just not even radical anymore. This is what culture is going along with. I don't think most people are going along with it. I think in their minds, at least, they're going along with it to not get canceled. They're going along with it so they don't cause trouble, so that they don't get fired from their jobs. But I don't even think the average non-Christian is really on board with this. It's really hard to believe. Mm. You know, we just concluded a series, Alisa, on we, we titled it Plastic People in a Liquid World. And it was based on um, Carl Truman's book, The Triumph of the Modern Self. And he, he describes expressive individualism there. And it seems that that's what you're talking about, where, you know, years ago, if you were experiencing gender dysphoria, you would be counseled to try to line up your mind and your thinking with your body. But now um, children are uh, many times not even their parents aren't even informed and they're allowed to try to adjust their body to their mind. 
mind. And, and I, I'm interested to read this. I only saw snippets, but it seems like in your new book, you are tracking two different ladies, Glennon Doyle, who wrote Untamed, and Elizabeth Elliot, who, of course, wrote mm-hmm. Gate Through Gates of Splendor. And I, I'm just interested if you could kind of give us a little bit of an appetizer about why you track those two. One of them, obviously, following the more progressive, this idea that I'm going to follow myself rather than sacrifice myself for the good of God and others. Can you kind of just tell us a little bit of a sneak peek about why you chose those two ladies and and what you do in the book? Right. Well, I chose to kind of compare Glennon Doyle and Elizabeth Elliot because both had very different responses to hardship in their life. And uh, so if anyone's unfamiliar with Glennon Doyle, she wrote a book called Untamed. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you, a lot of the messages in Live Your Truth and Other Lies are in response to a lot of the messaging that she's platforming um, that so many people are buying into. And these things don't just have devastating effects philosophically and even spiritually, but they have devastating effects on people's everyday lives and families. It, I, I know personally, I've met two different families who read her book and then ended up there being a divorce and everything's in chaos as a result of somebody wanting to live their best life now, essentially because of this Glennon Doyle book. So Glennon Doyle, um, the book Untamed is essentially the story of her deciding to leave her husband and marry this uh, woman that she fell in love with, uh, women's soccer star, Abby Wambach. So it's the, it's the story of them coming together. And there was a, a point in the book when she says that she was discussing what actually made her pull the trigger to leave her husband and go ahead and, and pursue this relationship with Abby. And it was her being a mother. She, she quotes uh, Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. I should probably memorize this quote because I'm asked about it so much. I always have to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me. But he essentially says something like, you know, the worst thing you can do for your kid is let your life be one that's not fully lived or something like that. So in other words, to be a good mom, you have to live your dreams. You have to to model what it looks like for your kids to put yourself first and to never settle for uh, a life less than what you dreamed for, essentially. And so she says, so I would leave him because I'm a mom and I have responsibilities. When I read that in her book, I immediately thought of Elizabeth Elliot, who famously was married to Jim Elliot, missionary to a unreached tribe in Ecuador. And when he and his fellow missionaries went in to try to share the gospel with this, uh, Uran- I always have trouble saying it, Urani tribe, um, they were killed by these tribesmen. And Elizabeth Elliot later went back with her two-year-old in tow and shared the gospel with this tribe and ended up bringing the gospel to this tribe for the first time, leading the very people who killed her husband to the Lord. And then I put in the book, and it's probably the snarkiest thing I say in the book, but I think it's fair. I say because she's a mother and she has responsibilities. And she modeled that for her daughter. And had Elizabeth Elliot decided to follow the advice of Glennon Doyle, there'd be an entire tribe of people who had never heard the gospel. And we all see just rippling out all these decades later, the story of Elizabeth Elliot and her husband, Jim, have been so formative and impactful in so many people's lives. And you just see the fruit of somebody living the gospel and not living for themselves. But as we talk about in the book, when we do that, the peace, the deep abiding joy, I mean, look at the life of Elizabeth Elliot, all the work she produced, all of the books that she wrote, the wisdom she imparted as a result of her obedience to Christ is immeasurable in the kingdom. And 
I just think that's a much better path than just trying to make sure that your life lines up with every little happy thing you want to happen today. I can't wait to read that. By the way, I saw that there looks like there's going to be some type of, of a study guide questions that will be after the chapters for this. Is that is that accurate? So there's this, I believe, if I'm not incorrect here, there's christianbook.com is, has a study guide that they're releasing if you buy it on their platform. But also for about another few days, I know the book, the book has already come out, but we're going to leave this up for a few days, but there's a form you can fill out on the the homepage there when you go to the pre-order page and you just put in your receipt number from where you bought the book and you'll get uh, some exclusive videos, but also you get a discussion guide uh, that will come along with that. So we're going to leave that up for a few days um, for your listeners as well. But yeah, you'll be able to have access to that that way Super. too. That's great. Well, Elisa, I think we only have time for one more question. So I'm going to close us out with this question around takeaways from your book. What do you hope your readers take away most from your book? Oh, goodness. I hope that people who read this book will, first of all, feel encouraged. I really want Christians who feel like they're in a battle all the time against all these cultural lies, all the cool kids are saying all these other things and all the most, you know, um, engaging platforms and funny people. They're all they're all on this cultural message and it can feel really overwhelming. It can feel like you're just getting out there and getting beat up every day. So I really hope that it would encourage people who read it to know like, hey, you're not crazy. You, if you are putting the word of God as your final authority, you are on the right side of everything and you don't need to worry. And the way that all of the compromises are presenting themselves to us, just these little compromises everywhere with, you know, do you put your pronouns in your work LinkedIn page and all this stuff that are that are facing everybody on these little kind of uh, levels. I, I hope that Christians will be encouraged to live boldly for Christ and not make the little compromises that lead to bigger ones. And may we be a people rooted in truth, knowing that if we have the Bible as our ultimate authority, we will not be led astray and we will have a foundation that is solid and unchanging, which isn't just spiritually better, but in practicality, it's better too. It's great to not have to check Twitter every five minutes to know what you're supposed to think. You know, because what you thought five minutes ago, which was what everybody thought five minutes ago, will get you canceled today. That is a exhausting way to live. And that leads to so much anxiety and the peace of living out the gospel with that stable foundation. There's just nothing to compare to it. So I would hope people would go away seeing that and wanting to manifest that in their own lives. Lisa, I know Ryan said that was the last question, but if I could have just one <laughs> final P.S., I think you title it Death March or something like that toward the end, and you give these counsel that you just gave in terms of putting this to practice and what you're hoping folks will take away from the book. But I'm just wondering in a broad way, kind of to pull our, both our episodes together, um, you're an award-winning CCM artist, and now you've gone through this experience where you were at this progressive Christian church, and... And I'm not saying you've moved necessarily, but you obviously your your roots have gone much deeper theologically. I don't know where you're at, but you seem to be more on the reform side, more of the creedal side, a confessional side of Christianity. And I'm just wondering, in terms of helping Christians stay grounded and as they navigate, I know you talked about those little compromises, but maybe just a few more. How do we stay grounded where we're not tossed to and fro? with every wind of doctrine. 
Yeah, well, it's the Word of God, right? It's being submitted to the Word of God. And I think that, you know, despite where people might land on issues that Christians have been debating about, and, you know, I'm, I, I would say absolutely I'm Reformed when it comes to the five solas, not a five-point Calvinist, maybe one day, you know, if it's predestined, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, these are issues I'm constantly thinking through. But the point is, is that all of us, if five-point Calvinism is the biblical view, then that's what I want to affirm. If it's not, then I don't. I, I want to know what the Bible teaches, and I think that needs to be the attitude of every person, not what do we want it to be, what would we like it to be, but what is the Bible actually communicating in its context? And that takes a lot of study. You know, there can be verses that are very hard to understand. I remember even as a teenager reading the verse where Jesus said, you have to hate your mom and your dad if you're going to follow him. And I remember thinking, there's got to be more to that. So I did a word study and, of course, realized that that word hate that's translated to English means something more like prefer one thing over another. And so that made a lot more sense to me. And so I think sometimes when those things come up, we got to study through and look at everything in its context, realize the Bible has been translated from another language, take into account um, the cultural context, the, pe- the original people that the letter was written to. How did they interpret it? And I think a lot of Christians try to jump right to application. I did that a lot my whole life. I would read about some Old Testament battle and just immediately apply it to some spiritual battle I was having. And I had no sense of the context or what was actually happening in Israel or why they were we're fighting that battle. And so, yeah, just, just, I think having the word of God as our authority, we will never exhaust it. That's a thing too. You will never exhaust the word of God. And so I think that, that just submitting ourselves to the authority of the word of God will give us a life that is stable and filled with peace. And then if we have questions, we can wrestle with God through those things. Like, Lord, I don't understand what I'm reading in your word. Show me, help me, illuminate this to me, lead me to some information that will help explain this to me. There's a wrestling that can go on, but we have to be submitted under the authority of the word of God. Elise, this has been great. And we pray for good success and many readers of your upcoming book. Well, thank you so much, guys. Yeah, really well said on that last response. And thanks, Brian, for slipping that question <laughs> You're in there. Uh, Alisa, we'd love to have you on in the future again one day. So uh, if you're open to it, we'd love to have you back. Oh, I'd love it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Great. My name is Ryan. My name is Brian. And I'm Alisa. Join us next time for more scripture and plain reason. God's word is true and God's word is clear. <laughs>